Well, good morning, everyone. I want to pray real quickly. If you would pray with me, I want to pray for Paul Zinn, who just left, wasn't feeling well. So let's lift Paul up in prayer together. God, we do uh, lift up Paul and Patsy this morning. Uh, it didn't look like Paul was feeling real great, and so we uh, would just send our love and our prayers with him and ask for your grace and your mercy and your healing and your wisdom over both he and Patsy as well as your comfort and uh, just lead and guide them to figure out what's going on and to help him get better. And Lord, this morning as we do open up your word, as we look at what it means to be a word-centered people, Jesus, would you center us on yourself? Father, would you center us on your only begotten, eternal Son, Jesus Christ? And Spirit, would you focus our hearts and minds and open up the word that we might know him better in your name? Amen. Well, I have been dealing with a cold for almost two weeks now, and it's not fun. It's been kicking my tail. Mostly it's kind of landed right here, so I apologize Ahead of time, if you if I feel if you, if I sound congested, that's what's going on. Apologize if I start hacking. And I uh, <clears throat> told Tom this morning that if I fall over, he's going to pick it up, and so he'll come up and finish it off if if that happens. If that happens. Now, for the next mu- uh, four months, from now through April, we're anticipating celebrating 150 years that First Baptist Church has been here present in this community of Prineville since 1873. And that's something we can praise God for, for his faithfulness, that there have been people continuously over over those years who fellowshiped together, surrounded themselves around the word here in this town, have been witnesses and planning churches and going on missions and doing many things. And I myself am a spiritual a descendant of of that of, of the legacy that's been here at, at First Baptist Church came to faith here when I was a, in middle school, and so for the next four months, as we anticipate that, as we lead into that time of celebration and remembrance of God's faithfulness, we're going to take an in-depth overview of our mission statement, and our mission statement is printed right there on the front of your bulletin as usual, and it's this: our mission is to be a people who embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel. And my hope is that as we, anticipate, as, we, as we look at this statement, that we would hold both the past and the future in tension as we talk about who we are and why we exist as a church. Why have, why have we been here for 150 years? Why are we here now? Why will we be here perhaps maybe uh, 50 or 150 years from now? It's a big deal that God has kept this fellowship alive for that long, and we desire to honor that longevity. We, we desire to honor the legacy of those who've gone before and look back with gratitude and celebration, yet, yet we realize that we can't just live in the past, that God has something for us now as we walk with him into the future that he's planned for us. So I think about it this way, we're grounded in the past and we look to the future. Last week, Doc walked us through 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and did a great job off the cuff, by the way. He didn't have any notes, didn't have any time to prepare. I was here in the morning preparing, and the guys looked at me and said, go home. And uh, he got up and walked through, and I think he did a fantastic job. So he, he began this look at what does it mean to be a people, as he looked at our identity that, that Peter tells us about there in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
And over the rest of January, we'll be exploring more what it means to be a people, that first part of our our mission statement. What does it mean to be a people? Not to be persons or peoples, but to be a people together, a church, a fellowship, a family. And this morning, we're going to, uh, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at this through the lens of our four core values, word-centeredness, radical dependence, generous love, and disciple-making. Those are our four core values. You can find those on our website. We talk about them a lot. Um, But today, it's what does it mean to be a word-centered people? I came across an interesting study this week that was put out by the American Bible Society. And it's, uh, it's a study they did, a survey on Bible engagement in the United States. So I'm going to give you a few statistics here. For the last decade, the number of Americans who report that they read the Bible at least three to four times a year has consistently floated right around 50%. So, so the Bible site looks back at this and goes, the number of Americans who open their Bible outside of a church service three to four times a year or more, 50%. That's a lot of people when you think about that. They open their Bible. This year, that number, for the first time in at least a decade, dropped by 10%, dropped down to 40%, or roughly about 30 million people basically just stopped reading their Bibles in any way, shape, or form. They also found that about 26% read the Bible once a month or more, which I actually thought was encouraging. You think about that. 40% responded that they never read the Bible. So 40% of Americans never read the Bible. And that's honestly not very shocking to me, but the the number from last year, from 2021, was 29%. So that number went from 29% that never read the Bible to 40% in one year that never read the Bible. So based upon the U.S. population, that's an increase of about 37 million people who just stopped reading the Bible altogether in 2022. Now, The study makes some distinctions between people who are engaged with Scripture and people who aren't engaged with Scripture. So it would probably not define somebody who only read the Bible three or four times a year as engaged with the Scripture. So they define Scripture-engaged people as those who have consistent interaction with the Bible that shapes their choices and transforms their relationship with God, self, and others. Okay, so somebody who's Bible-engaged, the Bible actually makes a difference in their lives. They read it, it changes how they act, how they treat people, how they live. The number of Bible-disengaged people who aren't engaged, who the Bible doesn't inform their lives, jumped from 100 million people to 145 million people. And the number of people who are Scripture-engaged, the Bible actually affects their lives, dropped from 64 million people to 49 million people. Okay, now, what does all this mean? Let me start by just saying my purpose in sharing these numbers is not to sound an alarm or to say that the sky is falling. That's not what I'm trying to do this morning. I, I would encourage us to refrain from despair or from wagging our finger at the people that we want to blame for this happening. Okay, we, we, we tend to do that, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to make any bad guys in this scenario. The call is actually for each one of us and for us as a people, as a church as a whole, to ask, what do we believe about the Bible? 
What do I believe about the Bible? How do I engage with the Bible? How does the Bible affect my life? What does it mean to be a word-centered people? I'm going to back up to a story in the book of Luke. And it's in Luke chapter 24. You can follow along if you want. You're probably very familiar with this story. It's at the very end of the, almost the end of the book of Luke. And it takes place on Resurrection Sunday, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, three days after he was crucified and buried. And two of Jesus' disciples have left Jerusalem and they're walking along the road to this little village called Emmaus. And as they're walking, Jesus joins them. they, They don't recognize him. They don't know who it is. And he joins them and he walks along with them. And in Luke 24, starting at verse 17, here's the story. Jesus said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him... They did not see. And here's what Jesus says to them. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So in other words, Jesus is saying, haven't you read your Bible? Didn't you know that this is what's going to happen? Let me explain to you. So he starts in Genesis all the way through Malachi and explains to them in their Old Testament, this is where I was. This is what they were saying. Here's what they were talking about. It was me, me, me all along. And Jesus makes it clear that the Hebrew Scriptures, the law and the prophets and the writings all lead to and point to him. He makes a similar claim in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is clear that God speaking through the prophets pointed to him. And now, the book of Hebrews tells us, I'm going to have you turn there, that's where we're going to actually spend the rest of our time, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews tells us that that not only did the Old Testament point to him, but now God has spoken directly through him. Long ago, at many times, Hebrews 1.1, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In other words, in the Old Testament, this is how God spoke to the people, is through the prophets, both orally and written. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. By Jesus. So so the entire Old Testament points to, it anticipates Jesus. 
Then Jesus shows up on the scene, and Hebrews tells us he himself is God's final word. And then after his resurrection, Jesus' followers write 27 books about him that are called the New Testament and over the following, over the following 60 or so years. And this is their apostolic witness of what God has revealed to them in Jesus. So the whole Old Testament, Jesus says, is about him. And now the whole New Testament explicitly is about Jesus. The entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus. It is God's word about his son, who, the Apostle John tells us, is in fact the very word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Who was the Word? Jesus. You see, we, we often think of the Bible as, an, as a historic book, a collection of interesting stories, maybe some moral fables that we should try to live by, an instruction manual for life, or, or maybe just as a devotional guide. And it certainly is all these things. But the Bible cannot be condensed down to any of these things because the Bible is the only book, the only book in the history of the world in which the incarnate Word of God, Jesus Himself, is revealed to us, speaks to us, leads us, and sanctifies us. It's a super natural book and it's all about jesus so to be a word-centered people is not merely to be a people who love the bible and attempt to just keep it at the center of our lives because we can love the bible and completely miss jesus can love the bible and miss jesus to be a truly word-centered people is to be a jesus centered people because he is the word there are a number of passages in the new testament that should actually blow our minds and what i want to do over the next few minutes is just give us a picture of who this jesus is who is this word of god that we're talking about but these passages should blow our minds because they take us out of our earthly kind of mundane context And they lift us up into the stratosphere, into space really, and give us a picture of what has been called the cosmic Christ. Passages like John chapter 1, like Ephesians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, here in Hebrews chapter 1, the entire book of Revelation. For the the duration of this morning, I want to unpack three verses in Hebrews chapter 1 with the intention really of opening our eyes just a little bit more to the person of the incarnate and risen Christ, who is the Word of God, revealed to us in the Word of God. So again, Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, according to verse 2, is the heir of all things. And of course, to be the heir of all things means that Jesus owns everything. 
That everything in the universe ultimately belongs to him. That he lays claim to it. It is his possession. But even more than that, this is a statement of who he is. It's a statement of his person, of his privilege. To be the heir of something is to be the firstborn, the first child, the the one who gets it all. So Colossians chapter 1 says this that Colleen read for us. He is the firstborn of all creation. The beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And the word firstborn here doesn't mean that Jesus was the first thing created. It means that he is the one with all of the special status and privileges that come with being God's heir, being his firstborn child, his only begotten son. But even more than that, God has appointed Jesus to be the first installment of of his work of recreating the entire cosmos, of reuniting heaven and earth and making all things new. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And so he is the first of this new creation by virtue of his resurrection or his birth back from the dead. And Romans 8 points this out and says, For those whom he foreknew... God also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be again the firstborn among many brothers. See, Jesus is the pioneer leader of an inheritance called the new creation, the new humanity, something of which by faith we can also partake as co-heirs and receivers of this amazing inheritance. He's the heir of all things. Verse 2 continues saying that through him, through whom also he created the world. The Bible begins, you know the the beginning of the Bible, begins with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And as I already quoted earlier, these words are purposely echoed nearly verbatim by John at the beginning of his gospel In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so when John, the writer of this gospel, echoes Genesis, he identifies Jesus not just with Yahweh, saying He is God, but he places Him as the divine agent of creation. So when God speaks and says, let there be light, somehow John is saying, that's Jesus. That's Jesus creating the world, the very Word of God Himself, the eternal Word. The entire universe was created in, through, and for the eternal Son of God. The same one who became a human baby. The same one who died on a Roman cross. Colossians 1 again, verse 16, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through Him and for Him. I mean, that just should blow our minds. That this Jesus created all things and everything exists for Him. Jesus is no mere carpenter who with his daddy Joseph built tables and chairs and maybe some houses and things. He's the very architect and designer and builder of of the universe. He is the radiance, according to verse 3, of the glory of God 
the exact imprint of his nature. So when God created humanity, he created them male and female in his image, in his likeness, to be like God, to reflect him in certain ways. He placed an imprint on Adam and Eve, an imprint of his nature, an image to place on this earth. And as it were, the task and calling of humanity then, imprinted with God's image, was to radiate the glory of God throughout the world until, as the prophet Habakkuk wrote, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's why God created us. That's what he wanted us to be about. So Jesus then is identified as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And this tells us maybe not so much about his divine nature, but about his human nature as well. As Paul wrote in Colossians, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is the perfect image of God, the perfect representation of the Father, and therefore the perfect human, fully God, fully man. The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he, in verse 3 again, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God's perfect self-revelation. He's the very Word of God by which the Father created the heavens and the earth. But even now we are told, this all-powerful Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and governs the universe by the Word of His power. Colossians 1 tells us that in Him all things hold together. Which I take to mean that if Jesus were to stop holding all things together, if He were to say, okay, um, electromagnetic force, gravitation force, weak and strong nuclear forces, you, you all stop. The whole universe would fall apart. It would disappear. It would be no more. In Him all things hold together. Even every cell and atom and quark in our body or in the universe holds together. Every created reality held together by the Word of King Jesus. Right now. We owe our existence and ongoing being to the word of Jesus' power. And it is this word, the word of the risen and enthroned Christ, that we as the church submit ourselves to and live by. It's what this is, brothers and sisters. This is the word of the incarnate and risen and reigning Jesus. The word of God that we've been given, that we're responsible to live by in the Bible, is the word of our King, it's the word of our Lord, the word of our Head, the word of our Savior. He is the source of our life as a people, and as such, more than the word of any king, more than the word of any government, of any authority, His word is crucial and essential for our life. So the call today is to be a word-centered people. And if we're to become a word-centered people, we must be a Jesus-centered people. Let me go back to some numbers real quick. The global population is quickly approaching 8 billion people on the face of the earth. Can you imagine that number? Now, think about this. 
For the most part, the majority of us spend a decent or the, probably the majority amount of our time and energy and thoughts on one of those 8 billion people, usually, usually ourselves. Okay, now this isn't just, this is all of us, right? This is, everyone's guilty of this kind of self-centeredness to one degree or another. And so the solution to this kind of self-centeredness is often to think, well, we should think of others more than we think of ourselves. And some of us do really well at that. That's certainly true. But I don't think this can truly happen until we swap out that one person that we give most of our energy, attention, and thoughts to for one other person to whom we should give most of our energy, attention, and thought to. Who is that person? I've been talking about him all morning. Jesus. If we can swap that out and give our energy, attention, and thought to Jesus, we will not become less self-centered by focusing our energies and attention on others, but we will learn to love and serve others when we focus on Jesus. Well, but how do we do that? And I think the solution is in the problem. If we are to become a Jesus-centered people, then we have to become a Word-centered people. We have to take up God's own self-revelation, the book in which He has shown us the picture of His Son as He wants us to have it, and feast on it, soak in it, eat it, read it, speak it, memorize it, meditate on it, make it central to our lives, or as Paul writes in Colossians 3, to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, the way to keep Jesus center is by keeping His Word at the center. Because it not only informs us, it not only tells us the truth, it not only gives us a way to live, in this world, and in a way that honors God. But every single part of it points to Jesus, draws us to Jesus, and shapes us to be more like Jesus. And quite honestly, there's a lot of people, I think many of us included, who want to hear a word from the Lord. Excuse me. We want to have guidance. We want to have clarity for our lives. We We would prefer for God to write something in the sky for us or maybe in in our coffee or something. We want God to speak to us audibly. Man, wouldn't it be great if God would just tell me, if he would just speak to me so I can hear him. And sadly, what happens is many Christians today believe it's more spiritual to close their Bibles in favor of some direct spiritual encounter and some new word from God. But if God were to speak to us today, and I think He does speak to us today, here's what I think He's saying. He's asking us, do you want to know Me? His answer, look to My Son. Look to Jesus. God's asking, do you want to hear My voice? His answer, listen to Jesus. You want to hear My voice? Listen to My Son. God asks, do you want to see Jesus? Do you want to hear Jesus? And his answer, open up the Word of God. For in it we find the words of God that point us to Jesus, the Word of God. God speaks to us when we listen to His voice, when we recognize His voice. 
And this takes place, we only learn to recognize his voice when we spend time listening to it. When we spend time in it, when we read it, know it, and love the word of God, the Bible. And for 150 years, the people of First Baptist Church, Prineville, have held on to God's word for dear life. We've always been a people of the Bible. Through thick and thin, through rough times, through good times, we've always been a people of the word. And my, my call to us is would we continue this legacy? Let's place Jesus and his word at the center that we might be a people who embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of his gospel. And it's this, that gospel that we celebrate yet again this Lord's Day morning as we come to the communion table. And I invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus through faith, to come and partake of this, this very tangible expression of the gospel. As we take this, we remember his body through the bread, broken for us and given for us on a Roman cross where he paid for our sins by pouring out his blood, which is represented in the juice that we take. And so as you come, I would encourage you to remember Jesus, to look to Jesus, to draw near to Jesus. Let's be word-centered. Let's be a word-centered, Jesus-centered people. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you this morning and we remember Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our King, the one who has saved us and drawn us out of the darkness, out of the kingdom of darkness, and placed us into the kingdom of his Son, the kingdom of light, that we may be enlightened to know and understand and hear your words, be shaped by them, be transformed by them, be challenged by them, be corrected by them, and be given hope and encouragement in them. God, we are so thankful for the dozens of human authors that you used over hundreds of years to write your words in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek to to point to you and to speak of you in poetry and in narrative and in law, in gospel, in letters, in apocalyptic literature, in prophetic literature, in all these ways, God, you've given us this book and you've transmitted it down to us in our very own language over the course of thousands of years. And here we have in our hands the word of our King, who is the word of God, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for giving us your word. And we pray that you would use it to shape us and mold us into your image as we become more like the firstborn of our our brother, Jesus, and as we follow you. Thank you for the inheritance you've given us as well, all the gifts you give us, and especially the gift of this church. Father, we thank you for 150 years of faithfulness, people we've never met, people who have gone before us and have have plowed the ground and allowed us to bear fruit and to partake of that fruit. And as we continue to plow the ground for your kingdom here in Prineville, Lord, we pray that you would make us to be a people who embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of your gospel. It's in your name that we pray and for your glory. Amen.